namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, there are a couple of questions here, but they, they take me slightly off what I uh, was hoping to address. Um, this morning, uh, I'll come back to them. The more, this morning we talked about this, um, uh, you know, this business of creating our own suffering and all that. And I just wanted to go into that just a bit more deeply. Um, the uh, the Buddha the Buddha uses the word which translates as the world loke. He says in this world there is this dukkha and the end of it. So dukkha is one of these very difficult words to translate because it has ideas which just doesn't doesn't make sense to us in terms of the word suffering. Or unsatisfactoriness gets close to it but it's really the whole gamut of human misery which all of us I'm sure have experienced so it's not only the, the sort of existential despairs and deep depressions and all that and death it's also the suffering that comes from uh, our indulgence with pleasure uh, the consequences of that uh, the addiction and the grief when you, you, know, you lose somebody lose something uh, the attachment, the, the pain that comes from attachment, which is always hidden, remember, because while you're actually enjoying something, it's heaven, not a problem. When I say enjoying here, you've got to be careful, because you know, we can get into the mistake that, therefore, <coughs> we're not supposed to enjoy life. We're not supposed to enjoy smoked cheese, which is ridiculous. It's trying to make a distinction between enjoyment and indulgence, which is uh, very difficult for us, because... Uh, they're symbiotic, they, they arise together very close to each other. Aversion is easy to get, because aversion immediately distances the object, you know, makes it an enemy, you want to push it away. So one is much aware of any feelings of aversion, fear, all that sort of stuff. When it comes to indulgence, it's, uh, it's, it's a close marriage, and they're very difficult to, um, to distinguish. Even so, distinguish we must. Huh? So this word, uh, dukkha, is very wide-ranging, very wide-ranging indeed, and we're not completely free of it until we are liberated, so that's the word. Enlightenment refers to the understanding, to that clarity, but liberation refers to the liberation from suffering. Okay. Now, the way the Buddha uses the word world is... Uh, referring to the five candors. Now these five candors are just a way of looking at the psycho-physical organism from the point of view of somebody who wants to become liberated. So we have various models of, of a human being and it depends what, what, you're, what you're actually looking for. So if, if you're a Freudian then you'd think about your superego and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but from the Buddha's point of view it was trying to uh, see the human being in terms of these five categories. And you call them heaps, aggregates, because they're all made up of bits. 
So the first one, of course, is all to do with the body itself, what we experience as sensation. And it really is actually only talking about the body that we can sense, not the body in itself, because the body in itself we know very little of, don't we? I mean, have um, uh, you any idea, for instance, you know what your liver's doing now? When you have your biscuits there, when you had your biscuits, <coughs> were you directing the amount of enzymes that were going into your stomach to digest it? So there's a whole, when, when you look into your body and actually ask yourself, you know, is this me? You find out you don't know much about it directly we know from science you can read about it but in terms of our direct personal experience there's very little very little that we're in we're actually directly in charge of yeah? cells die multiply i don't know what they do i'm a clue okay? i mean i breathe but it's normally automatic and something else takes care of this oxygen carbon dioxide stuff and i wouldn't know it was there frankly not that i've been told so, when the Buddha talks about the body, although that's included, it's really, really, he's talking about the sentient body. In other words, the body that we can sense through the five senses. Right? So it's mainly feeling, mainly feeling. There's also sight and hearing, like direct contact, you see. At, at the very base, remember, right here at the eardrum, all there is is pressure. Right? There's no sound as such. So all that's partitioned off, one side, you see. Um, then there's the next bit, which is to do with perceptions. So uh, I'll put them together, perception and feeling, because in Buddhist psychology, it always rise together. As soon as you have a feeling, the mind, as it were, copies it, and you have a percept. It has some sort of mental image to go with it. And as these images build up, so you move into more of a, a conceptual uh, mind, can be concrete concepts like apple that can mean anything can't it or more abstract but it all begins with these little percepts right and feelings he splits into those feelings that come into the body through uh, through those feelings that come through the body and those feelings that come from the mind in the body from the heart in the body they include a whole feeling that we have within the body and the thing about Vedana, see, that's the word he uses, as opposed to the earlier feelings of the body, is that we distinguish them as pleasant or unpleasant. See? Up until then, feeling is just, sensations are just neutral. But as soon as we perceive them as pleasant or unpleasant, even neutral, then we move into that area of feeling, see? feeling, perception. Now the next bit, he calls sankara, which are those things that we compound, we make up by ourselves. And the core ingredient of this is will. So now he separates all this to point out that it's at this point that we're, the, the creation comes in. And the will that's creating these sankara, these habits, emotional, mental habits, that's our inner atmosphere. So whatever you're feeling now in your general inner atmosphere, whether it's peaceful or unpeaceful, whether it's beautiful or unbeautiful, that's been, that's been created by acts of will. And what, we're, what we are experiencing is the conditioning of it. Right? Just a habit. So the mind is always producing this, this mental stuff. 
And the final one is consciousness. Consciousness here, uh, not to be confused with this pure intelligence of of, uh, of panya, this 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 the Buddha within. It's, we're closer to it when we think of it as like a screen upon which things are thrown. So it's like a television screen. You've got all this input coming in, and it throws it onto a composite picture. And that basic knowing is what the Buddha is referring to as consciousness. Now, <clears throat> he says that this is the world. But when he's talking about the world, he's not talking about something objective. He's not only talking about something out there. And one of our Western fallacies is to presume that we can know the world as an object, something quite objectively outside ourselves. So that when we look at a tree, we actually believe that the tree really looks like that even if I weren't looking at it. That'd be true, wouldn't it? One presumes that the tree you're looking at and you see is what everybody else is seeing. Yeah? And when, when you taste a bit of cheese, you presume, well, this is how the cheese really tastes. Completely independent of my tongue's ability to, to taste. <laughs> this is how the cheese tastes. And that fallacy really came up with our, uh, you know, scientific revolution. And it, of course it brought about huge science and technological advantage. But it's left us in a bit of a delusion, in the sense that um, we have this idea that the world and consciousness are two different things. That's where the delusion lies. So the world as we know it, the world as we experience it, can only be experienced by us, can't be experienced by anybody else. And that's the world we are actually living in. Okay? So, <clears throat> just a, very, a, a simple, for instance, of this room. So it's not as though uh, uh, Buddhism would deny uh, the existence of this room if we all left and disappeared. It would still be here in some <coughs> way. But our experience of the room, as we come in, is individual to us. So for some, it might be a very pleasant room. For others, I remember when uh, I was at the Vihara once and somebody came to see me who was a very strong Christian and when he walked, when I took him into the shrine room, I you'd definitely get the feeling that he was walking into the devil's den <laughs> and there was this sort of shock horror and there was a moment there of, of resistance uh, but he did give in so, <laughs> so people have different ideas of how a room feels they have a different, they have a different experience of a feeling of a room, you know when you walk in, what did you see? See, some people are very perceptive. They immediately, they see the pictures, they see that, but other people don't. They walk into a room and they walk out, they can't tell you what the hell was in it. But they've been there. <laughs> they can't tell you what the wallpaper was or anything. It's just, it's just the way they are. They're not, they're not particularly interested, we could say. So even though there are, I think, 11 of us in this room, uh, there isn't, there isn't a, a single room in terms of our personal experience, our personal experience of this room. In other words, as the room exists for us. As the room exists for us. So if we, if we take that proposition, if we realise that the world I'm living in is actually being manufactured by me, dependent on, of course, the stimuli coming in. So for instance... I might uh, a sound. I might hear some dogs barking. The actual sound 
that's hitting my ears is always dependent upon my eardrum. So obviously if I'm not, if I haven't got very good hearing, I'm not going to hear the same barks as you. But the barks that come to me, right, will be the ones that I personally hear. And at that perceptual level, it's all very neutral. I can look at something, I can look at a bird, and at the point of perception, it's just neutral. It's just a picture in my mind, which I then project onto that bird. You've seen that, have you, on, on these science programs? How we, how when they, when they um, study the eye looking over a picture, it's darting all over the place. We're completely ignorant of that. And all the time it's picking up these little pixels and throwing it back into the brain, the, the brain-mind complex. And then the, the mind picks up a, an image, it finds the image, and it, it, it very cleverly projects it back on the picture. It's quite amazing. So when we're not looking at the picture at all, we're just looking at what we're making out of the picture from all these little pixels coming through the eyes. So the same with hearing. All we're getting is little pressure points, and then the mind... The brain-mind has to take it in and make something of it and then very cleverly projects it back onto the bird. So we actually believe that we're, we're hearing the bird. But what we're hearing is what we have made up from these little sounds. It was once when I was uh, in meditation I started getting this tinnitus. And um, I would sit, you see, and my mind wouldn't be quite so, so we say, uh, steady and whatnot. And suddenly there'd be this tune, lovely little tunes going on. Very creative, wonderful. And then when my attention went to the actual tinnitus, it became a drone again. <laughs> it's all really weird. And I kept playing around with this. One minute it was just a, a plain, dead sort of drone. And next minute it was playing these amazing Mozartian tunes, which I failed to write down, of course. So, when we... Uh, begin to recognize, see, that the world we're living in is the one we're creating, then the question has to come, how is it I'm not blissfully happy? How is it that I've not found a way of creating a world which is, you know, full of peacefulness, joy? So when the Buddha gets to his liberation, you see, or uh, there's a, a more telling story really, somebody says to him, you know, um, this training to become liberated is very difficult, very hard. And the Buddha says, yeah, yeah, of course it is, but when you get there, you get to Nibbana. And the questioner says, Nibbana, so what? <laughs> so what, yeah? So he says, well, when you get there, you are, and his words are, contented and with it happy contented and with it happy so the contentment is the manifestation of no wrong desire right? to be content is to be at one with what there is uh, even if it's not particularly brilliant and happy is the general state of mind now this happiness can be translated into all sorts of uh, facets all sorts of modes so it might be love, it might be joy, it might be just peacefulness, but the point is that it's happy. So that's the proposition. The proposition is the world we live in is actually being created by us and something is going wrong in that creation which is not making it 
contented and with it happy. And the Buddha's saying that that's a possibility. Right? That's a possibility. And his whole teaching is to try and get people to move from that position of being uncontented and unhappy to being contented and happy. And in the five candors, in the five heaps that we've just described, that's like a slice in time. If you were to just stop a human being and slice down right down there at that moment of time, you'd get this congregation, this aggregation of things. But when it's in process, then it becomes dependence origination. Right? The whole process of dependent origination. <coughs> and the point of interest for us is that point where the five candors, these five groups, have actually uh, got to a point of producing a contact with the world. Right? That's the moment, right? This world, remember, is both the outside world something we hear and see, but also the inner world of things that we feel, emotional states, thoughts, images, all that is our inner world. All of them are objects to this consciousness. Okay? So there's a sense base, there's the object, and there's the knowing of it. Then at the next point, there's um, a sort of basic duality in the world that we experience it as either likeable or unlikable. That's a given. Even the Buddha, you know, had a had a bad back and didn't like it. I'm sure he didn't like it. <laughs> I mean, he's not, you know, and he was given food. I'm sure that he didn't particularly like. But that's a given. See, I mean, the food that he ate that was supposed was to poison him. Uh, he knew it was bad. One wonders why he took it. But anyway, he he, he knew it wasn't so good. And he told he told Chunda, the person who had offered him, to go and bury bury the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, to leave a question mark in the mind. So, that point of um, feeling, Vedana, right? The world splits into this likable and unlikable. But you can still remain at peace with it. That's the basic contentment. Yeah? But then something happens, remember, psychologically, which produces a relationship to this. And that's what we call this wrong desire. It's often translated as sensual desire, which I think narrows it too much. It's just a wrong desire. Uh, we don't have, remember, a good word to translate this tanha with. Tanha is the desire arising out of wrong understanding, attachment and all that. At that point, you see, there's a, a, a habit of just trying to grasp the object, trying to hold it, trying to develop it, and... Uh, there's that there's that desire there. See, nothing's happened at that point. Okay? That's why it, it manifests as an intention. Manifests as, as a desire, as an intention. And I was saying that if we can just remain at that point, see, to hold that point, to hover to hover within that point, and recognize that movement, that desire, as being unwholesome, and just wait for the energy of that to dissipate, to just to just blow itself out, we're we're destroying that conditioning. See, we're destroying that conditioning. And if it's of course a wholesome thing, then of course you empower it, you do it. And just that very simple way, you just change yourself completely. See? All that negativity that we have begins to blow out, and all the positive stuff within us begins to grow. 
very simple see? now at that point when that uh, intention arises nothing's happened it still remains at the level of potential that's the important thing to grasp so if we have a desire arise which we see is positively evil and terrible and how could you see then you, you don't get into and guilt arises or this huge thing about I must be a terrible person then you also note that as a judgment because nothing's happened yet yeah? now you might have murdered somebody in the past but that's irrelevant now at this present moment <laughs> the desire the desire to do something evil may arise and if you just stay with it you see nothing's happened it still remains as just a potential an idea and that's really really important because if we start getting guilty you're sitting here in meditation and, and suddenly you're throttling somebody you see and you start getting guilty about that getting guilty then there's a you know you, you're <laughs> going to create all sorts of psychological problems um, actually that's not quite that's not quite right because if you're already imagining throttling them you've already <laughs> potentiated <laughs> potentiated that that initial desire um, and, it, uh, and although it remains only in the mind it's uh, of course everything begins there yeah? there's nothing in the human world that the human created which didn't start in the mind you know, whether it's whether it's the atom bomb or whether it's jet planes it all began in somebody's head somewhere see? so uh, that initial desire arises okay now the next step remember is the grasping of it and that's the point where we identify where the want becomes I want see? now something happens there something something psychological happens right you lose control that's the that's the real bad thing you lose control because now there there is anger now I am angry see? there is a feeling of depression I am depressed see at that point you sold your soul to the devil you can't get out of that anymore you've identified with it of course you can jump out quick and say oh don't stop you know no there there's depression not me not mine is it but the but for that moment you you've lost you've lost it you see and that identity now is very difficult to stop sometimes you can you have to be really 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 awake to stop the next step which is to empower the desire see and so that energy comes in and that's what the buddha calls chaitanya will now it's only at the point of identity that the suffering begins that's what we've got to really grasp when you're there and there's a desire when you walk into say your kitchen at home and there's a desire for that biscuit you see, you see if you if you remain there and just and sort of hover over it and wait for it to pass see there's no suffering but as soon as I want the biscuit and there are no biscuits in the tin then there's suffering <laughs> See, so as that that point of suffering, the actual suffering doesn't begin till the identity. So long as we're saying to ourselves, "There is anxiety," see, "There's depression," "There's grief," "There's all this," you know, all this awful stuff. See, there, it's not pleasant. Nobody says it's pleasant, but it's not the same as I am. See, as soon as the I am comes in that's what the Buddha means by Dukkha that's, that's the Dukkha of the Dukkha right? that's the suffering of suffering See? and as I say at that point it's very difficult not to reinforce, not to put energy into that original desire 
and that energy is the will and the Buddha says will is karma that's your act so there's not been an act and therefore there's no there's no actual uh, consequence until something is empowered and as soon as it's empowered the I is reproducing itself and that's why he uses the word bhava becoming I'm constantly becoming this I So every time, like for instance, somebody's, um, uh, you know, played a little trick on you, just, yeah, played a little trick on you, and and you know, you you you've, you've seen the irritation come up, and and you've you've been very mindful. It's oh, okay, yeah, let go, let go. It's there. It's very strong in you. This irritation, but you don't you don't join in. And then there's just a little slippage, and before you know it, you you've manufactured this little uh, daydream of telling this person exactly what you think of them. See now at that point, you see. There was, first of all, the desire, you see, the irritation coming up. Then there's a moment where there's a loss of mindfulness. Yeah? And that means there's a becoming of the irritation. As soon as you become the irritation, it slips up into this wonderful intellect we have, this imaginative intellect, and produces something. Okay? Now... In our meditation, what that's pointing to is to be very much aware of what the mind's thinking about all the time. Because unwittingly, it's developing these conditionings. That's why in our meditation, we're always taught very quickly, as soon as you come out of a fantasy, whatever it is, you note what the attitude is. Not concerned at all with the subject matter. That's irrelevant. It's just this emotional state, this conditioning, grasping hold of something in the memory and making something of it to develop that mental state. So if I'm angry, if there is anger in me, the desire is to develop the anger. It might be righteous anger. That's the best of them all, righteous anger. You can blow the world apart with righteous anger. <laughs> and and you, you uh, and what you're doing is you're creating this, this, this imaginative world in which this anger is, is developing. Now, uh, that's the sequence, you see. You have the contact. A feeling perception arises, which you, which you, in this case, in this negative sense, you perceive as unwholesome. And then there's this reaction of wanting to do something with it, either to develop it or to get rid of it, if you don't like it. Wanting, not wanting. There's a sudden falling into an identity, I want, I don't want, and then I do, or I don't do. Okay? There's your sequence. And once that's done, once the doing is committed, whether in the mind, I'm just talking about the mind at the moment, that reinforces the whole of these conditionings, these sankharas. Okay. Now, so long as it stays in the mind, in a sense, it's only doing us, us harm. It's only creating an inner environment, which is not very pleasant for us. But it's very difficult once you've, you know, established a mental attitude not to begin to launch it out onto an unsuspecting world. Yeah. So what was angry inside your own heart, your own mind, suddenly begins to manifest in the way you speak and in the way you talk, yeah? in the way you, in the way you act rather. So the outward flow of these of the mental states is very difficult to stop once you've actually begun it, once you've actually started developing a, this mental state. 
So if we're if we're clear about that, then in our when we're sitting, that's our purpose is to get down to the heart level of attitudes, the felt level of an attitude, and to stay with it and allow it to burn out. And that demands, of course, a growth in patience, a forbearance, who is really difficult to be with. Uh, if we suffer from anxiety, fear comes up. The fear of fear, that's your, that's your panic, isn't it? And just to be able to stay with that, you know, just to not to move, you know, be like a mountain, just not to move and just wait for that, wait for that you know, nausea and, and awful feelings just to pass away. And of course, the more you do it, you, the more you grow in patience and the more you grow in courage to turn into these inner demons. See? And that constitutes the purification. Right? So when the Buddha says that he's got rid of all desires, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about exactly what we've been describing. Got rid of all that negative desire stuff. And remember just, you know, when we talk about this, although we, we always talk about, or generally speaking, about things that are quite negative within us, like anxiety and anger and all that, it's also, remember all the indulgences we have, all the lusts, all the desires, all the greeds, which we experience as rather pleasant when the mind's dreaming away on it. Yeah? But, but these things also become very obsessive. Mm? The lust for power, nothing like it. <laughs> So that's all uh, how to deal with. The Buddha is saying, you know, you've got to be at that level where the Vedana, this mental state has arisen and the reaction to it, the desire. If, you, if we can stay with the desire to develop, to, in, to indulge, or the desire to reject long enough and let it just die away, we're actually allowing this original stuff to blow itself out. That's all. Now, to see that is to see this 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 concept this this um, the sequence of events of the desire and how the I comes in. Okay. So even at this point, we're also seeing the impermanence of these states. But we're also seeing this business of the I, this self that the Buddha keeps talking about, this, this, this idea that the self is the, uh, the deeper root cause of our problems. Now, if we go back to the beginning of that dependent origination, he always starts with this word avidya, which translates directly as not knowing. Sometimes you get translated as ignorance. And that, in a sense, gives it a twist which is not there. Like, you know, you should know, you're ignorant. But it's not that, it's just not knowing. And because of this not knowing, we presume to be what we experience. That's about, that's about it. We presume to be what we experience. So, we experience ourselves as human beings, and therefore we presume that's what we are. Right? Conventionally speaking, we know we're human beings. But in any ultimate sense, then uh, it's not, it doesn't have any, any substantial meaning to it. 
because this this me is constantly in a process of change it's constantly changing its parameters constantly changing its understandings constantly changing its experiences but somehow within the whole of this life experience there seems to be this centre point which never changes have you noticed that? this me always is there doesn't matter what happens on the outside I, you know, I, can, I can lose both arms and, one, and both legs and my nose but me, I'm still there I can change all my opinions and do all sorts of things but this me remains completely constant never seems to move <laughs> the sense of this deep inner sense of presence correct? see? now the Buddha says this is, this is the root this is the root cause of all our problems this very sense of self this very feeling that we have of being me now the fact that we are aware of it the fact that we actually know it's there tells us immediately we can't be that you can't be something that you know as an object yeah <laughs> being to be something uh, it's like for instance they say very well in the Mahayana the eye cannot see itself. But it does perceive. But it can't see itself. If it could see itself, that'd be really interesting, wouldn't it? It can see itself by way of reflection. We can see our faces in the mirror and we can fool ourselves to think that that's how people see us. But we don't, do they? <laughs> they see our faces the other way around. It always comes as a shock when you use two mirrors. Because you never thought your nose was quite that twisted. <laughs> it's like your voice. You, you hear it on voice. It's only when you hear it coming out from a loudspeaker or something that you think, God, that sounds terrible. <laughs> so you have this, we have this view of ourselves. It's always very, normally speaking, fairly positive, I think. And we think that that's how actually people experience us. But they don't. So the eye can't see itself, the tongue can't taste itself. See, even here, within our experience of this body, we're being told that you can't be something you're aware of. If the basic sense of your tongue was curry, how could you ever enjoy ice cream? It'd be difficult. Everything would be a lovely taste of curry. <laughs> so it's the fact that the tongue is empty of taste that it tastes. It's the fact that the eye can't make images, that it sees images. Okay. So there's something within us which is beyond the phenomenal world and yet able to receive it. That's the proposition. When the Buddha talks about, in that victory verse, he uses this, this little phrase, chittang asankata. There's this word chitta, you see. It translates as, as a consciousness, a knowing which is not conditioned. Not conditioned. Now, everything in the phenomenal world is conditioned in the sense that it depends on something else. Yeah? Everything, that, everything you see in this world is leaning on something else, is dependent on something else, is in relationship with something else for it to be. I mean, we take so much for granted, but we know that, you know, we have four minutes 
if we don't get air. That's not very long, is it? Four minutes. Nine days without water. I think it's two months or three months without food. And we forget that dependency. We forget, in fact, that this body is, is, is like a fountain. There's stuff coming in and stuff going out all the time. So it's a double-headed fountain. <laughs> and in the process, it sort of changes. So there's something in us which is receiving all this material, knows all this material, feels all this material, experiences all this material, and yet is not of it. Yeah? So now, this process that we go through in Vipassana, right, it's about turning the inner world into an objective world in the same way that the young child, round about the age of four months or something, begins to externalize the world that it experiences as totally me. I think in psychology they call it the first object relation. It's your mum usually, yeah? And that's the first out of this mass of, of sensation. If you can, we can't, it's difficult for us to imagine, isn't it? But it's just all sensation and you can't make sense of it. All you know is pleasant or unpleasant. When it's unpleasant, you scream. You know? <laughs> the world's coming to an end. And and then suddenly this this thing separates out. Huh? Sometimes you see little children, you know, where, where they're trying to make a go at some rattle or something. And what they're doing is, you know, this is what they tell you anyway, uh, is they're building up this this three-dimensional world. Before, it's just, presume it's just flat. And suddenly they see this thing and they're reaching out for it and they're, they're creating distance. They're creating this, this three-dimensional space. And at some point or other, they become quite aware that there's a world out there, might not be conceptual, might not have words for it, but there's something out there and there's something here. Quite separate, yeah. And all we're doing is taking that process inward. That's all. So whereas we have bathed ourselves, confused ourselves with all the inner, inner world that we experience, our thoughts and imaginings, our feelings, our bodies and all that, as soon as you sit in meditation and these become your objects, they become the other world. You're disidentifying with them. And that little distance that you feel between the knowing and what is being known is, we can call it, a Nibbanic gap. <laughs> Don't quote me. It's a, Nib <laughs> a Nibbanic gap because somehow uh, we've we've pulled out and it can no longer affect us. When, um, when we're sitting in meditation and perhaps we're dealing with um, a very pleasurable uh, feeling, the, uh, a very joyous feeling comes up in the body and it wants to attach itself to something. So it begins to think about this planning, this business you're going to set up which is going to conquer the world. See? And and you stop it doing that, and you still stay with this sense of excitement, this sense of um, sort of a slightly excited sense of joy, you see. And as you as you separate from it, and it's there, you see, it's got no power. It's lost its power. It can't. It can't get into the mind. It can't begin to create. It just remains as a lovely little feeling. And then slowly it passes away. If there's a grasping after it. You see, if there's a wanting it to stay there, then we haven't distanced enough. We haven't let go of it. 
right? It now becomes that 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 connection which we might not have perceived while it was there, but as it fades away, there's a desire to grasp at it. That little connection, see, that's the tanha. That's the beginning of suffering. But if we're just there, absolutely equanimous, see, like the Buddha's always got his left hand resting. Yeah? equanimous and it fades away and there's no reaction there's only an interest in that process of fading away then it's not touched us okay? it's not it's not grasped us or rather we've not grasped it but that's how the feeling is that it's not taken us over we're not being hijacked by it see so all these things that come up in the meditation pleasant or unpleasant and neutral we'll come to that in a minute are all points where we can begin to experience this distance. And every time we pull ourselves out from that relationship, we are unwittingly see, establishing a different relationship. And that different relationship is taking us to a place, slowly but surely, which is completely in the world. See, the Buddha didn't exit the world once he was liberated. He didn't sort of just disappear or something. And yet untouched by it, un, uh, unaffected by it in any negative way. Now, as you, we can get so far, remember, with our acts of will. When pain comes, for instance, in the knee, so the normal thing is, the first, the first sensation of it, you might, you might just get that feeling of just not wanting it. So there's your, there's your desire, right? But uh, it's not big enough yet to grasp you. So you just stay with it and you wait for that to pass. If the pain gets really bad, then you get a deeper sense of aversion towards it, a fear that your knee's going to explode, all that sort of stuff. And you're just watching it. You never get involved. You're just feeling it. Your attention goes to the reaction. Hmm? As the reaction dies away, you're left with just this pain. Right? You're equanimous with it. Right? Not that we try and defeat pain, yeah? You never win on that one. But so long as it remains manageable, yeah. So you then go into the pain, and you come across sensations which constitute the pain. So that's at the level of the first aggregate we're talking about. That's when you're experiencing pain, not as pain, but as tightness or or heat or pressure. Hmm? And at that level, you notice there's no desire. It's a perfectly equanimous level to be at the level of contact. As you move your attention or it slips back into a step before that and the perception pain comes up, you see, then you realise that there is no such thing as pain. That's a mental percept. What there is, is sensation. Now, it doesn't mean to say that it's useless because if we don't recognise pain, then we're obviously going to do ourselves damage. But it's just knowing that pain is mental and not physical. And as soon as that word pain comes up, you've got this reaction. Just to observe that process, you see, is to observe how we create the world out of this, how we're creating that world around pain in that just that little experience. And you can do the same with an emotion. See? So when anger comes up and you feel irritated about something, you see, you stop it from creating a world, right, this imaginative world, and you come back into the body and you may still feel it as, as anger, but as you go into it, it becomes just heat. Heat and, and, and fiery energy. 
and then you know that that's what it actually is and it's the mind that then conceptualizes it in this sense it's the other way around because the mind is full of this fiery stuff and it's affecting the body and in some of your meditation sometimes you can see that separation that the mind with feeling separates from the body with feeling and it's that, that those sorts of little insights that make it very easy for us to understand how we can you know how there are psychosomatic illnesses because the mind itself is making the physical part of our body uh, sick ill it's confusing it so we pull out from the body with its sensation pull out from the, from the heart with its emotions and when it comes to thought to images we can also just note them but you have to be very careful because in in placing your attention on an image it's often actually empowering it and the image can take over so again you just note the image come back into the come back to the breath and there comes that point where there's just this knower the, the, this just this witness inside you the feeler the observer the one who knows the um, the experiencer call it what you wish and that's really the final point you can get to by an act of will in your meditation and if you're very still at that point you know occasionally it comes turn your attention towards that towards that feeling where's that feeling that sense of a self being manufactured Now, on the positive side, we've got all this negative stuff. On the positive side, remember that that whole process is developing very positive attitudes in us. It's developing that sense of, a, of, of discriminative inquiry. It's developing patience and forbearance. And also, remember, you can flavour your, your looking with kindness. So you're looking kindly upon yourself, kindly upon these things. Hmm? Now, when it comes to... Uh, uh, sorry, and the other thing is developing is this this equanimity, right? This complete openness to the way things actually are, to see and understand the way things actually are. That's the Buddhist phrase. Right? It's translated literally it's to to see and understand the way things come to be. Because the Buddha's question, remember, is never why we're suffering, but how. Right? He's not interested in metaphysics. He's interested in this process of how we create suffering, and in seeing it. He's presuming that we'll see how to end it. And on the that, so that's what the Vipassana is about. The Vipassana is about seeing this process, to see it as impermanent, to see it as not me, not mine. But when you then come out of your meditation, you see, there has to be a um, translation of that understanding into an attitude. And that's where the metta comes in. So whereas intellectually or understandingly we might begin to experience or understand this idea of interconnectedness, it remains very dry unless it's turned into an attitude of love, of a quality of love, whether it's sympathetic joy or compassion or any other quality that you can think of which you would put under that large umbrella of good relations. And that's what the practice of metta does, right? Now, in some traditions, and you have to agree, it's not absolutely necessary because the, wid the wisdom would translate 
naturally into an attitude. But it does, I think, help to make that little effort to develop goodwill. And then that's why every morning uh, there's that point where, you know, I remind people to make a, an act of will for the day. Right? Your, what is your resolution for the day? It doesn't matter whether you keep it or not. Right? <laughs> what, what matters is that you keep, uh, as the Buddha says, inclining to Nibbana. Right? Just leaning in the right way. So if you lean far enough, you, you tend to take a step. So these little resolutions in the morning, which, which every time you lose it during the day, you, you reinforce it, they have this effect of, you know, making you do it. There's a rather nice passage in uh, Joseph Goldstein's uh, work, which he wrote about his experience, right at the beginning, he called the experience of insight. And uh, if I remember rightly, he would get up very early in the morning to do this meditation and fall asleep. Okay? But he didn't say, oh well, you know, I'm just too tired, you know, this is obviously not working for me, I'll, I'll just sleep a bit more. No, he just kept getting up and going to sleep. And then one morning, I think two or three months on, he got up and he didn't. <laughs> and that's it, that's how it works. See, you keep empowering your, your good intention and you keep tripping over and forth. You pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, you start all over again. And then one day, you're doing it. See, and it's just, it always begins, remember, in the mind, with intention. So... These little resolutions at the end of a sitting, yeah. it can be specific to something you, you're going to have to meet during the day. It can be general, and it can be either a negative one that you're not going to go down that road. I would always suggest that one, and a positive one that this is the path you're going to take. You see, and every time you know you've slipped, you reinforce your commitment to those resolutions, and this immediately begins to have an effect on the way we speak. You see, that's right speech. And then it affects how we just generally behave, right action, yeah, which is uh, you, it's always on an ethical basis. Because remember, the self, the self is always um, self-endearing. It's uh, self-protective. It begins, you see, not from the point of view of evil, but from the point of view of delusion. And so it feels better if it's bigger. And it considers bigger being richer and more powerful and, and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> So the more you have in the bank, the more happy you feel. You might not, I mean, it's like um, Spike Milligan said, wasn't it? He said, they say money doesn't make you happy, but I, I would just like to have a go. <laughs> I just want a chance to prove it. So, <laughs> so it's, it, the self is always, is always trying to substantiate its existence to make itself feel safe. Remember, that's the fundamental fear of the self that it is not safe that's why it can't handle sickness old age and death it doesn't make itself feel safe so everything you could say on, on a positive level uh, when we're working from this particular delusion is just to make ourselves feel safer the fact that it's at the expense of everybody else in the world is irrelevant right? <laughs> what is relevant is that I feel safer and so all action in terms of this process of liberation is always around some sort of ethical basis. And then there's, and then there's right livelihood. Now it's very interesting that the Buddha should put that there because logically speaking, I suppose you didn't need it. It's included in right action, but he does. And there's um, your livelihood. If you think about what the, uh, um, the virtues, the... Um, 
the traits of your personality which your actual employment is developing yeah so whatever whatever we do for for the for the better part of our lives those eight, those eight or so hours a day they they're having an effect on us see so somehow we have to make sure that whatever we're doing is done with right attitude so if you're doing a brilliant job begrudgingly what's the point in terms of this process of liberation if you're doing uh, what seemingly might be to other people you know a menial job or, 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 or not an important job it's it is important to to that person if they make the decision that this is what I'm going to develop in this in this work <coughs> I mean, the kernel experience in my life was when I was a, when I was a kid and I went to work. Um, I got this holiday job at this factory making cakes. And it was one of these old belts you know, that came round, these cakes. And all the women were standing there and they put me on the end of the line of, this, of, this, of these, <laughs> these women. And for them it was utterly automatic. My job was to put the cherry on top of this thing as it passed by, you see. And of course, for them, they were they were yapping and talking, having a whale of a time, and they were just doing all this stuff just like that. You see, when it comes to me, I'm starting to put this damn cherry on. Every so often, I'd miss, and the machine had to stop, and the, the foreman would be shouting at me. And they're all very kind, looking at this boy, you know. Said, oh, leave him alone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, I, I I remember thinking to myself, what a what a dreadful, you know, what an awful job these poor women have got to come in and do this all day, you know, for eight hours making these damn cakes. <laughs> Looking back now, of course, from the point of view of the, of, of the meditation, what an, what an amazing opportunity to develop concentration. Okay? Moment to moment, concentration on that cake as it passes by. Cherry spot on in the middle. <laughs> Never missing. <laughs> Eight hours. God, I'd have, come out, I'd have come out enlightened, I'm sure. I'm completely liberated from all, from all cakes anyway. So it doesn't matter what you do, you see, eventually, it doesn't matter what you do, it depends, I mean, apart from the obvious uh, unethical things that we can do, uh, it's the attitude which you do it. It's, it's your resolution as to what your work is that develops in you, and to do it for that reason. And for doing it, when we do something for virtue, it, 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 it automatically benefits the other. So you don't have to. You don't have to worry about whether it's benefiting the other or not. They might not receive it so well. <laughs> but the point is, it's it is it is a their, it is to their benefit. And that's how the rest of the path, the rest that right speech, right action, right livelihood, right begins to recoil back into the mind, you see. So where we started in the sitting posture, uh, getting that vantage point, allowing uh, negative states to arise and burn away, beginning to develop that uh, wisdom about who we are, what we are, as it moves into daily life, it actually is developing these mental states so that our inner life becomes more and more joyful, more and more, more and more peaceful. That's the theory.
I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you, by your deep and profound commitment to the practice, move towards your liberation sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.